1: All right, back to Danny Does Paris Week 1, which means that he is out here. But Kevin Pelton is here to discuss a topic that he is uniquely qualified for, and that is the best and worst draft picks of this decade. Mr. Pelton, good day.
2: Thanks for having me, Nate. I did also kind of want to do uh, my worst draft projections of the decade because this this uh, experiment definitely made me think of many of those. Oh
1: yes, yeah, that'd be, but not your best draft projections.
2: Well, a few of those. Those are better because of the fact that those are all in the best draft pick. like Well, not all, but many of them are in the best draft pick section. But the worst draft picks, it was like, well, no, I can't blame this team for saying this because I thought this thing, too. <laughs>
1: yeah, you're, you're a big uh, Wes Johnson fan back in the day? Well, we'll get to it. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so we'll get to it. Yeah, I think uh, – maybe centers from uh 2014 draft to, could could be involved for uh, your uh, your best picks All right, I, anyway. I wouldn't rule it out <laughs> so uh before we get started here what are your criteria for determining what's a good and bad draft pick I mean obviously we could just go through and look at the numbers of okay this is the draft slot this guy had these numbers therefore it's a good or bad pick but I presume there's a little more complexity to your ideas than that.
2: Yeah, I did look at that, certainly. I updated that database. But, uh, to me, it was much more, and and this is actually probably more true on the worst draft picks than the best draft picks. I really tried to go very process-based and what, based and what people thought at the time. So, you know, I looked at not only what I had projected and had written about some of these draft picks, but, you know, when John Hollinger was writing publicly before he was hired by the Grizzlies, a lot of that for him. And, you know, just tried to get a feel for these are the picks that it was kind of obvious at the time were a mistake. And then they didn't work out, too, because some of them looked like obvious mistakes at the time, but then did work out.
1: Yeah. You know, I I like some of those, too. I mean, there's to me, there's the top picks that just, all right, these were awful. But there's a special level for these were awful. And you probably should have known that at the time, too. You know, that that's uh, another aspect of this uh, as well um and then for the best draft picks that I, I tried to take a little bit different of an approach uh, i wanted to take ones where hey you know what these guys knew that this guy was good when maybe nobody else did this was an unconventional pick and it really worked out as well or you like this guy so much that you traded up to get him and then it worked out really well right one of these things where it's not like okay right you you took Blake Griffin number one overall in 2009 or uh good job taking Carl uh, Anthony Towns in 2015. okay that's just you know that's what everyone would have done there so you're right. you're where are you adding value as a front office and where are there also indicators that it might not have just been luck
2: uh this is interesting now on the worst draft picks did you factor in trades because that was not something I factored in
1: uh there was definitely a couple of those where okay. I was like, Wow, you traded up for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I have a pretty strong sense of one of those.
1: Uh twenty fourteen is a great draft year. Okay, um, so why we we're just gonna alternate here. We're each gonna pick ten in each category. Why don't you give me? And this is in no particular order. We're gonna we'll go through. We're just gonna establish the universe, and then we'll uh, each pick like our three worst at the end
2: who is your first
1: nominee
2: mine are chronological so we're going to start at the 2009 draft which we considered part of the 2010s for this exercise because you really can't say anyone from the 2019 draft was a best or worst draft pick just yet i don't think uh so we start very near the top of that interesting lottery with hashim the beat at the number two pick by the Memphis Grizzlies. I mean, this was someone who, you know, I think it's easy to overstate in hindsight how clear it was that he wasn't going to work out in the NBA. He rated okay in terms of his statistical projections. Uh He was 13th for me, I think like 12th for Hollinger. And, you know, he... He was a reasonable lottery pick, but to take him number two with all the talent that was in that class, including James Harden, with the very next pick, and and you know at least one person is going to come up in the best draft pick section, and then also to have it be, you know, I I I should have looked this up, but on a team that had Marc Gasol, he wasn't yet Marc Gasol, but. That is another factor that eventually made this such an awful draft pick.
1: This will be a very strong contender for uh, the absolute worst pick. Your next five picks, James Harden, Tyreek Evans, Ricky Rubio, Johnny Flynn, and Stephen Curry. (laughs) Um, and you know the whole thing about him like not really being able to catch or finish or move yeah not great also extra points for like ownership involvement in the pick as well there are reports that Michael Heisley it, was really interested in drafting him at the time um congratulations by the way. I didn't even say did I say we were gonna start with worst picks who, who deserves the uh the blame for being so negative and starting with worst worst pick
2: uh you said choose your worst at at the end and that's the clue i was taking is to that we were going that direction
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm so negative and i don't even realize <laughs> it okay my first nominee here I'm gonna go in so I kind of have two categories one is just the high picks who didn't work out where the you know the the process was pretty bad some of them are just if you draft a guy this high and it doesn't work out even if your process wasn't especially terrible you got to get nominated I also have another category of just picks that might have been lower but were just like obvious wastes the moment they were made just because of their fit I think we, we saw a lot of these as the Nba really began to change in the middle part of the decade to emphasize spacing and speed a lot more but i'm gonna start us off here with uh josh jackson number four overall in 2017 already not on the suns anymore has had his fourth year option decline only lasted two years they had he was so bad that they actually had to give up assets to salary dump him after two years uh the character stuff was not good there was some of that he he had an incident when he was at kansas although it seemed like everyone just uh put that away as oh well you know he's just really competitive he's a really passionate type of guy because he it seemed like he played hard uh he had one of the most busted jumpers of any player or uh, any perimeter player ever taken in the top five he couldn't shoot free throws there was no indication that that was going to improve he wasn't a great finisher he didn't have big hands he wasn't big enough to guard the best wings there are just a billion red flags when that was taken i hated the pick at the time and uh that's one did not have a great record in the 2017 draft but that's when i was absolutely correct
2: on definitely someone i considered did not end up in my top 10 he was 30th in my stats only projections i mean really the reason i didn't include him is because of the fact that the sun's were- weren't alone here like reportedly a number of teams trying to trade up to get this pick i I think there was a period where uh my espn colleague brian windhorst on the uh, hoop collective podcast was referring to josh jackson as like the new michael jordan because of the fact that that's the way that teams seem to be treating him is they were trying to trade up for him so it it wasn't just the sons that didn't see this coming
1: yeah that might be true but uh i did <laughs> so <laughs> since i am doing this ranking i'm gonna put him in there okay your turn
2: well staying with the 2009 draft you already mentioned the name and that is part of that group of it's you know there's two hall of famers in there two mvps in there uh some other very good players and then there's the beat and johnny flynn at number six to minnesota i i think that it's again easy to overstate in hindsight how clear it was that flynn was going to bust he was a really good player. at Syracuse. I actually had him, based on the version of my model that I was using at the time, rated ahead of Steph Curry and wrote that he probably combines scoring and passing as well as any point guard in this class, which is a class that, again, included, I mean, James Harden, we were treating as a shooting guard at that point, but James Harden, Drew Holiday, uh, Rubio doesn't really combine scoring and passing that well, and Steph Curry. Uh, the context makes this one look worse, though, in my opinion. The other thing, by the way, on Flynn is he he had a series Hip injury after his rookie season, and oh, I yeah. think if that didn't happen, his career might have gone a little bit different. But the context yeah. makes this: if one...
1: Kurt Rambis and the Triangle didn't happen to him, his career might have gone well, a little bit different too. That's yeah,
2: that's what I was getting too. because so not not only did this come one pick after they had taken Ricky Rubio, who was also a non-shooting point guard, those two guys never had a chance to be able to play together. But then uh it, Kurt Rambis was not their head coach at the time, but they hired him, brought in the Triangle in August, and Johnny Funn was about the very last point guard you would want to put in the triangle
1: there's not a lot of those as it turns out uh, like real uh, actual bone cards so, there's th- not a lot think, of talented ones Yeah, I, I think this is a little disturbing though because y- your model might be a little more uh, intelligent like is it passing the Turing test like did it watch the 6OT game <laughs> of Johnny Flynn and like got impressed just like everyone else did like is that is, that's a little disturbing
2: I mean he was a really good college player he just wasn't quite as good like at that point I was over adjusting for strength of schedule and You know, Steph Curry now comes out as a much better prospect with the benefit of hindsight, but, uh, yeah, I mean Flynn. You know, I I would love. It's one of those guys I would love to see him get to run his career over again
1: for sure. Yeah, and and I don't think I would have had him in my top ten. Uh, and obviously we're we're overlapping here, so we may go a little deeper than our our, our top tens. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't have him in there just because of the injury, and you just don't know what could have happened. Um, and we never saw him run any kind of real NBA system. Um, actually, I realized something though. Maybe you shouldn't go in chronological order because like then you might take some of mine as well gotcha. like it or or so maybe you should just uh kind of pick randomly here okay. um okay next one for me this one is you might argue 2018 it's the last year that we're going to be considering here it's too early to say anything about 2018 but with the way luka Doncic has played this year marvin bagley number two overall 2018 by the kings just inexcusable everyone at the time was saying that luka should be the pick all the statistical translation said that Luca has had the, the best career of basically any prospect in terms of what he had done in the EuroLeague, winning EuroLeague MVP, uh, and they did not, in fact, take him. They took Marvin Bagley instead.
2: Yeah, this was also in my top 10. Bagley, after I adjusted my model to factor in positional replacement, dropped to 41st in projected wins above replacement player among prospects in that year's draft. Uh, I had him eighth on my personal board and I'd say he's probably surpassed my expectations to some extent so far. Like I think, you know, if we revisit this podcast in five years, there's no doubt that Marvin Bagley is the player on this list who is most likely to make us look foolish then, but certainly not by being better than Luka Doncic because he would have to develop into one of the three or four best players in the entire league. And that seems exceedingly unlikely
1: yeah I mean that's what it comes down to it's that I mean there might be some years where because especially since the number two pick has been such a wasteland over the years where he actually might not have been that bad of a number two pick in a vacuum but uh basketball is not played in a vacuum everyone would die uh you're back
2: All right. Let's go with one of my wild cards that I think is least likely to appear on your list. Although it does fit in. He's probably the only example of a category that you mentioned in terms of later picks that just made no sense at the time. And this one was kind of personally annoying to me because you know I do keep a closer eye on the Blazers than other teams. So we're going to the 2011 draft when they took Nolan Smith with the 21st pick. And not only was Nolan Smith Obviously, not a good NBA player. He had the third worst warp projection of anyone drafted that year in my model. The next three picks after him in order Kenneth Fareed, who we'll come to later, Nikola Miritich, and Reggie Jackson. Like they reached into a grab bag that had, you know, three winning lottery tickets and they pulled out the one that was already scratched off and had lost.
1: Yeah, well that one wasn't he was on that 2010 Duke team, right? Yep. So that maybe that was a, a big part of it. Yeah, certainly certainly extra points for drafting some guy who looked good in the tournament uh, or was just from some legacy school and just uh, had these hallmarks of oh, you know, he's just a quality player from a quality program, you know, those sort of tropes. Um all right, next one for me here. <laughs> uh let's go back to the 2018 draft. <laughs> <laughs> and uh still uh, the number one overall pick in 2018 (laughs) DeAndre Ayton uh not nearly as bad I don't think as Bagley in terms of the consensus there were some I think even Mike Schmitz uh, when we did our our pod before the draft sort of had Luca and Ayton as co-number ones uh Ayton played better in his one game defensively now suspended you know he he totally could turn out maybe he'll be even you know a top 10 center in the nba i'm still a little skeptical of that be, because of uh his defensive shortcomings last year but maybe those will get fixed but still nonetheless especially when you throw in that same thing you're talking about the positional replacement value to take him over luca again was another one i was i was killing it at the time i was right i'm gonna those are the ones that i really focus on the, the most here
2: Yeah, understandably so. I mean, I I don't think to me this rose to the level of a top 10 uh, just because of, you know, like you said, it was more defensible at the time. It wasn't the worst, most egregious example in that draft. But again, taking anyone over Luka Doncic now with the benefit of – not with the benefit of hindsight, because we all thought this at the time, a huge, huge mistake. And then, I mean, even – you know, the other thing about Bagley in particular, but you can say this about Aiton too, is these guys still have some work to do to be clearly better than Jaron Jackson, let alone Trey Young.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you there. And I had both Jackson. I think I had Aiton and Jackson as like in, a, in an effective tie Bagley. I think I had like eighth on my board and that might have been because I only evaluated like the top eight prospects that year. Um, So your next one here.
2: We're going to go to 2016, where Chris Dunn was taken fifth overall.
1: Oof, he was on my list, too.
2: Yeah, age 22 at the time. He was 18th in my warp projections. And then the next two picks, both in the backcourt, were Buddy Heald, who we didn't love at the time, certainly, but has looked good with the benefit of hindsight. And then Jamal Murray. Uh The Wolves already had Ricky Rubio at point guard at this point. It wasn't a major need for them. It ended up being, you know, kind of a, a season where they were trying to figure out what to do at that position. And then by the end of the year, Within, yeah, no. By the end of the year, both of those guys were gone. Where they had traded Chris Dunn uh, for some value, certainly as part of the the package for Jimmy Butler, and then had let Ricky Rubio go as well, and ended up with Jeff Teague at point guard. So, didn't really solve the position there.
1: No, no, they didn't, and I think the fact that they're able to trade him salvages this slightly, and Dunn has been a good defensive player, but they're really, you know, everyone who was saying he was just the next one of these hyper-athletic Derek Rose, John Wall, Russell Westbrook kind of point guards that just wasn't there on the film. And he couldn't shoot. He was never going to be able to shoot. And uh, he's, if anything, regressed as a shooter. All right, let's take a quick break here. And we shall return for more of the worst draft picks of the decade with Kevin Pelton. In a league that moves at the speed of social media and helps define the current sports culture, only two voices can keep up Ledlow. And Parker. How was that? Was it, That was fun. I think I'd do a pretty good, like, movie guy intro. But Chris and Ludlow and Candace Parker do an awesome all-new weekly podcast simply called Ludlow and Parker. I like that naming convention of just two... Last names to identify who does the show. It's, uh, where have I seen that before? They'll talk the hottest storylines in and around the NBA. They'll break down Hoop's impact on the sports landscape and they'll bring their personal stories and connections into the mix. Candace Parker, uh, just love the work that she does. One of my favorite segments they ever did on Inside the NBA is when she schooled KG and told him that the one foot up and under is not a travel. And she was absolutely right about that. Kristen and Candace are also going to talk to some of the biggest names in and around the NBA, as well as some of the most Interesting voices impacting the sports and entertainment world today. So not just figures in basketball. Tune in to Ledlow and Parker, they see the game differently. New episodes drop Tuesdays, so listen and subscribe to Ledlow and Parker wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back here, it is my turn, and go for another one of these guys who just many, many people had alarm bells about this guy at the time. 2014, number four overall pick, Wes Johnson, was only 23 when he was drafted, basically had one good year at Syracuse that wasn't even that good and uh just there wasn't enough there to like wasn't good enough as a shooter was an okay athlete but not an amazing one didn't really have many ball skills just was kind of doing it by physically overwhelming and being older than everybody uh and i'm guessing he wasn't too
2: high in your models at time. he was not uh he was 34th in projected warp and i I feel like when you talk about the the 2010 lottery you got to talk about two selections in particular together those being who were both on my list uh so we'll go to the next on my list uh Wes Johnson at number four, and then Epe Udo two picks later at number six. Both of them were four-year college guys. They weren't technically seniors because they had transferred. hadn't been particularly effective at the first stop. Broke out his college prospects or as draft prospects, I should say, in their fourth year at the second stop, and both go in the top six of that draft. Neither of them looked good in from statistical models. Uh, Udo was forty second in my warp projections, and neither of them had panned out in the NBA. They. they They. They both turned into useful role players at some point. Udo, an excellent defender. Johnson, a guy who did eventually become sort of the three and D player that you know I think people envisioned. That was kind of. I mean, how many years
1: was he like actually in a rotation and deserved it? Like one or two? I mean, he like that mid-level exception contract that he got from the Clippers was like just a terrible
2: contract it was not a great contract but you know he did have a long nba career certainly uh and it looked on you know looked at after 2 years in minnesota like he was going to wash out entirely so that was yeah. I, I guess some sort of uh you know, a silver lining, but yeah, yeah definitely I, I, a, a terrible draft pick.
1: I wouldn't even say that he had a long NBA career. I mean, if he did, like the last two years of that were probably just because he had that contract. <laughs> like he would have been, he probably would have been waived before that. He was just kept around a salary balance. I could not pick Epe Udo, uh, just cause I hung out with, uh, with Ethan Strauss and, uh, <laughs> recently. And, uh, you know, I know he would really be upset with me I if, mean... uh, back in his Warriors World days when he was trying to convince, uh, them to play Epe more. I mean, it, Epe was really a, an awesome defender. Um, So, let's turn now to the 2011 draft number 10 pick, Jimmer Fredette. The Kings traded into this slot... They traded down, but also took on a bad contract at the same time in John Salmon. And the next pick uh, was one, Clay Thompson. Jimmer checks all the boxes, really old, four-year college career, uh, was uh, appealed to the fans because everyone knew he, who he was in college. And they're just, I mean, I guess you might have been able to say, hey, you know what, he's kind of similar to Steph Curry, but he wasn't anywhere close to that level of shooter, was a billion times worse defensively even, uh, th- and I don't need to explain to you why Jimmer Fredette isn't as good as, as Steph Curry. I'm, trying, <laughs> I'm trying to talk about it at the time. Um, where was he in some of your projections?
2: He, he was eighth in my stats only wins above replacement player projections. So yeah, this is one where I I didn't you know really uh, really destroy them for that pick because of the fact that I don't think I liked him as much as that, and certainly there were other guys ahead of him in that group on the board, including someone who or two people who would come up in our best draft picks list, uh, but. I, I didn't hate it. I did hate the trade for the reasons you you uh, enumerated. And also, you know, they should have known that it's only good to trade for John Salmons if you do that at the trade deadline.
1: <laughs> yeah, John had a period where he just was terrible and then would get traded to a team and was awesome. Like 2009 Bulls uh, was part of that. And then I forget where he got traded in, in 2010. Um, okay, your turn.
2: Uh, let's stay in the 2011 draft because that was not the one that I highlighted from that group. I instead went to, well, besides Nolan Smith, uh, I instead in the lottery that year went to Jan Vesely at number six. He was 47th in projected warp. Uh, John Hollinger wrote at the time, quote, taking him in the top five or 10 would be a mistake. And that indeed proved to be the case because (laughs) even though we thought that was kind of a weak draft at the time, of course, it included uh, a really outstanding lottery. As it turned out, Uh, Kemba Walker went, you know, three picks after him and then just outside the lottery was a a future Hall of Famer.
1: Yeah. And uh, another Hall of Famer in uh, Clay Thompson as well.
2: True.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Vessely is an interesting one. I didn't include him because I think he actually if he wanted to be, he would be in the NBA right now still. And he would be actually I mean, at number six. Just to get a guy I don't think it's like so terrible now you know he played some three he played some four in Washington like they wanted to see whether he could shoot I mean he really is sort of an undersized rim running center that's what he's been in Europe and at the FIBA level and I think he you know would be a solid backup center still in the NBA if he but I think he just wants to be in Europe at this point I mean I think um, the
2: NBA evolved to his game and I don't know yeah. if I'm gonna give the Wizards a lot of credit for that because I don't think they saw it coming in terms of him as a center they drafted him as a pure four
1: yeah yeah no i mean it wasn't a good pick certainly i i'm uh i'm not gonna argue with you um all right let me throw it in here so we each have i think that was your fifth pick i've done four. 2014 11th pick doug mcdermott this one special credit he was terrible in the statistical models because he had just in a historically low rate of blocks and steals he also was traded for 16 and 19 which Okay, you're, that's not a great value just to trade 16 and 19 for 11. Historically, most of these trade ups don't work as well when you're combining picks but then you throw in the fact that those two picks were gary harris and yusuf nurkic whom i think most people really liked a lot in that draft i know you were a big nurkic guy uh so you combine all that and mcdermott just especially for a team that was supposedly trying to take the next step thought they'd be in championship contention uh with cap space that 2014 summer Derrick Rose was coming back. Jimmy Butler would come into his own that year. And, you know, the Bulls history might have been totally different if they had Yusuf Nurkic and Gary Harris. Jimmy Butler probably never gets traded. They're probably have been in the playoffs every year since 2014 at a minimum. And, you know, probably four seed, five seed, something like that. Instead, uh, you know, everything went downhill. And that was really that was the beginning of when the Chicago front office lost its mind, a a status that continues to this day.
2: Yeah, uh, this trade was even worse than you made it out to me because they also like the, for some reason, the, oh, the yeah. Bulls were the ones who threw in a second round pick, and then they took back Anthony Randolph's salary. And they were trying to use cap space that summer, so they had to pay the Orlando Magic to take Anthony Randolph off their hands. Two like, second
1: wh- round picks to get off of like two point five million dollars.
2: Like, why are you doing the Nuggets all the favors here? You're the ones trading two pick, you know, uh, number nineteen to move up five spots from sixteen to eleven. When I wrote about my. You know, my piece of manifesto about teams overpaying in the draft and, uh, you know, a draft pick trade value chart, the Doug McDermott trade was high on my list of trades that illustrated the point that teams pay too much to move up. Your turn. All right, my list is actually running a little bit lower, I think, than you think because of the overlaps here. But let's go to 2017, where uh, the Knicks drafted Frank Nilakina, eighth overall, a pick that weirdly we probably looks bad in hindsight for different reasons than it looked bad at the time. Uh, was you know maybe a little bit of a reach there? I had him twentieth in my warp projections, and he went one pick ahead, famously of Dem- Dennis Smith Jr., who was sixth in that. Two picks ahead of Zach Collins, who was fifth, and um. A- you know the process was not good. A major reason for this was he was drafted because he made sense playing in the triangle. And Phil Jackson was gone, I think weeks later, not even or days later, not even uh, you know short, not even that long thereafter. And uh, you know he's probably going to be a decent backup point guard in the league. Knicks fans still have high hopes for him eventually developing into more than that. And of course they did now get Dennis Smith Jr. at a a year later. And it turns yeah, out the new, yeah, if
1: you'd known that they could have just picked up Dennis that they would eventually get Dennis Smith right. at all which and Frank Nilakina.
2: yeah can have both now Nilekina is probably better than Dennis Smith who uh, who's curious 2019 decline 20 decline is something that really needs to be further investigated but the reason it looks bad in hindsight despite all that is because Donovan Mitchell went 13th and Bam Adebayo went 14th and uh you would much rather have both of those guys certainly than either so, Nilakina or Smith.
1: So I wouldn't have had Nilakina in there because I don't think anyone was talking about Mitchell or Bam going that high realistically. No. And, and Smith, I mean, I did kill them for taking Nilakina over Smith. I actually thought Nilakina, you know, could maybe carve out a George Hill type of career as it's turned out. His handle is too loose and, and his shooting has been a massive disappointment so far. I don't, I thought he would be an effective player. I mean, I think as if you just said, hey, picking this guy, number eight, without knowing that Smith was behind him at the time, and again, I was totally wrong about Smith, at least to date, uh, I wouldn't have hated that pick at the time. So that's not one that, that I would have included personally. Um, all right, let's uh, get back to some of the hits here. This, again, was one that this guy was supposed to go number two. He ended up going number three in the draft and I didn't hate the pick at the time. This guy gets 20 in 10 walking out of bed. Jaleel Okafor, 2015, number three. I do maintain that he might have been a little better had he not had uh, some of the knee injuries that he had, but clearly just an anachronism in where the NBA was going. There's a lot of these picks uh, around this time, but this was wasting the number three overall pick on him. They also, granted, this guy was injured, but they also had Joel Embiid already on the team.
2: And there Noel.
1: Uh, Yeah. And uh, then compounded it by, like, waiting a really long time to trade him and not getting anything for him. So, that I mean, especially the combination of number three pick, pretty decent draft, and the fact that if you really thought about it, he wasn't going to work in the modern NBA. I don't think anyone would have thought he was going to be this bad defensively, but certainly that was uh, something that showed up on the scouting report.
2: (laughs) And also, the next pick was Kristaps Porzingis. Is uh, relevant at this conversation. Uh, I I didn't have Okafor in my top ten. I you know strongly considered it, but ultimately the factor that doomed him there, even though you know his uh, stats only projection for me wasn't particularly good. Uh, you know he was fifteenth in that year's class, but I still deferred to the scouts on that one because they were so confident that you know he should have been. Right there with Karl-Anthony Towns, like 1-1-A, one, one much like you talked about with Ayton and Doncic earlier. Uh, so I still had him third on my personal board, so I can't really give the Sixers that hard of a time about taking him there, even though, again, the context of the players they already had on the roster made that look much worse.
1: Yeah. Well, this is one where I thought it was fine at the time, but looking back, I was like, I really should have seen it. Like, this was really dumb. Like, (laughs) like, I should, I should have recognized how things were changing, uh, even more quickly than they were. Um, so, uh, all right. Who you got here next?
2: All right, if we're going for the hits, let's go to 2013, where the number one overall pick was Anthony Bennett. Uh, Much like the 2009 lottery, again, this can seem like a more obvious bust than it was in hindsight. Bennett was a reasonable prospect. He was 12th in my warp projections, was actually ahead of the number two pick in that year's draft, Victor Oladipo, who has uh, panned out in his third stop. But still, to take him number one overall was a pretty enormous reach and one that almost immediately failed in a way that at the end of his first season when they traded him as part of the Andrew Wiggins trade, it was basically just his salary ballast rather than for real value. Didn't even make it to year three of his rookie contract.
1: Four years, 151 games, 39% from the field, 26% from three. Now, again, this is one of those ones where I, I mean, when you take a guy that bad, number one overall, it's tough. But that top ten: Oladipo, Porter, Cody Zeller, Alex Len, Nerland Noel, well, Ben Mclemore, Contavius Caldwell-Pope, Trey Burke, C.J. mccollum and you know, among the players who realistically were being talked about at number one, this is the year that nobody knew who was going to go number one. I wasn't that high in Oladipo; he had really only broken out that junior year, uh, had not shot the ball well before. Then there big times concerns uh, about his shot. A lot lot of these guys are really low ceiling New Noel probably would have been the pick but then he tore his ACL and frankly he didn't work out very well either
2: I'm still holding out hope for New New Noel (laughs)
1: uh but yeah I mean obviously Bennett was the worst of all those but it wasn't like and he was a surprise pick there but it's just like, oh yeah, everyone else, like to say it was so obvious that anyone else should have gone there, that's pretty difficult to say. But still to, to go get the worst guy in the lottery at number one, that's, uh, that's tough. So, I mean, certainly it's, it's gotta be in there, but I do think that it's something that it has to be discussed as potentially extenuating circumstances. Okay. Here's one that I, I think we are really going to enjoy. The Sacramento Kings 2016, 13th overall pick, Papa G. <laughs> Giorgio's Papianas, his most relevant NBA moment was getting a five second back down violation about five feet in front of where I was sitting along the baseline in Cox Pavilion. And during summer league, I still talk about that uh, as evidenced by the fact that I just talked about it. I, I
2: personally remember it as the time that he was like, I don't know if it was stretchered off, but uh, it looked like he had suffered a serious injury in like a Friday night game at the Cox Pavilion. And Ben Gulliver and, of uh, the Washington Post and I, I think, were the only two reporters basically in the building and like tried to follow him as they took him they took him towards Thomas and Mac and you know tried to or to the elevator or something, tried to figure out what was going on. And then it turned out it was just a bone contusion; he was fine.
1: Oh yeah, I think I vaguely remember that. I was uh, I was probably like at the buffet or something by that point uh but yeah so the hilarious part of this i mean number one, like that was that might have been the pick that gavoni has killed the worst over the <laughs> years that <laughs> just this guy is like in the 50s now he at least had like awesome statistical translations but another guy who just you know modern nba wasn't going to fit they that pick the the what they traded was they had the Suns had 13, 28, and Bogdan Bogdanovich, and they traded that for number eight, which the Kings had to get Marquise Chris. Also, you know, at least would have to be an, an honorable mention on this list. But Papa G was just so out of nowhere, never did anything. They had to pay to get off of his salary within a couple of years, and it was... Uh, actually, he was... Wasn't he part of the... Uh, there was, like, a miscommunication over who was going to take him?
2: Oh, no, right.
1: Uh, and in a, a trade... At the, I think it was the 2017 deadline.
2: It was George, the George Hill deal.
1: That's right, yeah. So pretty rough, uh, but they still won the trade because they got bugged out of it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I uh- – you mentioned his statistical pr- projections. I didn't publish one for him because of the fact there was a very small sample size that whatever league it was that he was in that I translated. And it was like, yeah, this is too good. I'm a little skeptical of this, and I'm glad that I didn't. Yeah,
1: yeah. I guess it's uh, fair to not do a statistical translation when you can't even remember the name of the league.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that it was a reasonable way. That, that may I, not have
1: as much predictive power as we might have hoped.
2: I just don't remember it five years <laughs> later.
1: It must. I, I was at the Greek, it, was, it was either the. It might have even been the Greek first division. Actually, maybe it was the Greek second division.
2: It uh, wouldn't have been the second division. I do not have Greek second divi- division translation. Sadly.
1: Okay, that's an excellent one. Uh, you're up next, here.
2: Uh My list is actually up, but I did want to ask: Did you have Evan Turner on your list?
1: I did. Yeah, 2010, number okay. two overall pick.
2: I wanted to make sure we discussed him. So let's get to that.
1: Yeah, please. By all means.
2: I mean, you make the case for him, and then I'll explain why I didn't have him. I guess
1: everyone thought that he should go number two. I didn't really like him that much at the oh, time. That's I, you, oh, that's
2: why you—oh, yeah. you didn't have him. I see. Uh, oh,
1: oh, oh I, I mean, I had, I had him on. Oh, the the case for him being an okay pick. Yeah, sorry. Was was that everyone had him at, at number two? But I did have him on my list. I mean, that he was, you know, not a, not a great pick there, and there were some better guys that went right after him.
2: Yeah, I mean the re- so the reason I didn't pick him, his junior year stats legitimately outstanding that year, and Hollinger had him that year at number two on his draft board. I mean, I remember having a conversation about him. This is dur- he was drafted during the point I was consulting for the Pacers, and like you know, comparing his stats to Brandon Roy and talking about how you know I was u- using similarity scores for draft picks, and he didn't have anyone who was similar to him because there was no one in college and in, in my database who had been as versatile as he was. He didn't shoot many threes in college, but hit them at a 36% clip and it was a 76% foul shooter. So I don't think you could have known at the time that he was never going to develop an outside shot and was going to like so stubbornly refuse to shoot threes as he did much of his career. So
1: yeah, this one was a kind of a scouting one. I mean, I I wasn't as closely into this. I really 2014 was the first draft that I really like got into doing a lot of film work that I actually had access to do that. But uh, having seen him on the time he was at at TV all the time, I just didn't think he had the athleticism I thought his jump shot for. Form would not translate very well to the outside i don't think he had a lot of volume from three at the time and he just he couldn't get by anyone and he couldn't really jump over anyone and he was kind of just using his size to back into the lane and take these floaters was how he was doing all this scoring and yeah he could dribble at six seven but he wasn't able to really force the attention of the defense to open up passes for others so i mean that that's one that i did so so are you nominating him what's the what's your official history? i'm not, you nominating not, him, no. not
2: nominating him you're not nominating him we've already gone through my full 10
1: oh wow okay all right well i i have a few more here then uh i did some extras <laughs> because uh noah vonley 2014 number nine overall pick this is one where i remember he this is, i could probably tell this story now uh the outlet that i worked for had like an interview set up with him and i wrote a piece a couple of days beforehand saying like of just you know a scouting report saying hey you know what like because there are all these leaks about always right in the mix in the top five in this great draft uh and i wrote this piece like no this guy has terrible hands i'm not buying his jump shot he's got no feel he's not really he can't really protect the rim he's not a great post player and uh so as a result of that his agent canceled the the interview (laughs) (laughs) which seemed uh seemed pretty petty i mean there there was like you know 15 people worked for that it was it was ridiculous but uh hey guess what i was right uh he turned out to be uh you know a fringy role player got drafted number nine number one i was right that he wasn't gonna go in the top five um and number two, it was uh, pretty obvious that uh, he was going to be kind of you know not necessarily a starting player. I mean, maybe if he'd learned to shoot a little bit better, uh, he he could have been. And he had quick feet; he could switch. But those are really and he could rebound. But that was just there are a lot a lot of good players got drafted behind him. Peyton, Peyton, McDermott, Charch, Levine, T.J. Warren are your next five picks uh, after that. So that that's just one. I mean, it's uh, that's not going to be obviously a top three nominee. But I, I thought that was just interesting because a lot a lot of people were kind of on him, and I'm like, okay. Slow down here. That's uh, so.
2: I, I had him ninth in the war projections that year. I liked him better than Julius Randall, who went two picks higher. So I, I can't say anything here.
1: Yeah. Uh. Okay. Thomas Robinson, 2012, number five.
2: Yeah, that's an interesting one because of the fact that I, I feel differently about it, knowing what I know now about draft projections than what I knew then. Uh it was interesting again was working for the Pacers during this point and I recall really hoping that Robinson would enter the draft in 2011 uh because of the fact that at that point he was seen as kind of a guy in the 20s and you know that was uh, was someone that we could have potentially gotten that year with I think it was the 15th pick of the 2011 yes it was that that'll come up again Oh later. oh
1: oh, oh, it, oh it was that yeah, that's yeah. the pick the Pacers had in 2011 yeah, I, yeah I, that'll
2: absolutely. come up won't it? uh <laughs> and his sophomore year stats were or yeah his sophomore year stats were really awesome his junior year stats declined precipitously but uh then when you kind of put it all together in the current version of my warp projections he is uh let's say i want to see 23rd but you know he was still someone that a lot of stat based analysts liked i think john hollinger had him really high so I, I felt that was a little bit too much hindsight
1: yeah i mean it just for to be number five just how bad his career actually was and this is another i i wasn't like like that low on him at the time either um you know that that was a time period where just traditional power forwards had ruled the previous decade and traditional power forwards who can't also play center and can't also protect the rim really are useless. In today's game, but you thought maybe he would develop some more off the drill. I mean, similar to Anthony Bennett too, Derek Williams was also in this category. I mean, some of the biggest busts from that era were traditional power forwards who suddenly didn't have a place. Now it's not like Robinson even had, you know, he, he, I mean, the, the two problems with him are number one, he just wasn't what he was advertised to be. And then you also throw in that what he was advertised to be suddenly had no value in the next couple of years. And it was really the, the perfect storm there.
2: I mean I think him and Vonleigh are an interesting pair of players. Both ended up with the Blazers in their second seasons and you know they were trying to kind of reclaim that lottery value as second draft guys and weren't able to do it. But also very similar that neither of them could finish around the rim, despite both being advertised as great athletes, didn't have finishing ability, which yeah. turns out is an important comp component of athleticism
1: yeah and uh and feel i think that's something that really became more of a something to be understood i mean you used to just say like oh guy can jump you know tyrus thomas is another of these guys, great athlete oh yeah he's gonna be a great finisher yeah and uh no actually it turns out that that's
2: uh it's also interesting because there's someone who got sort of blamed for this and and you know uh put into that same category where it turned out to be very wrong and he's going to be in our best draft picks
1: Okay. So there's a th- uh, we've got 21 nominees here. We, we went one too deep. Um, A few others that I think just deserve mention. I'm guessing you didn't have Derek Williams, 2011 number two overall pick because everyone had him there.
2: Yeah. I mean, he looked awesome at the time. I watched him play in person at UW. He was third in the stats only projections that year. I totally would have taken him number two as well.
1: I mean, he shot 56% from three.
2: Yeah, another person who inspired changes to my projection system so that we would filter outliers like that back towards the mean. <laughs> hey,
1: that, that's that's what these these draft picks really are for, is helping to improve the, the, uh, the projection system.
2: <laughs> Look, um, you better at least learn from your mistakes so you don't repeat them. Yeah.
1: Um, Marquise Chris, Dragon Bender, Mo Bamba might end up uh, on this list as well. Uh, but <laughs> then... There's another group of just lower picks that I felt we really, and feel free to break in on any of these as I go through. Uh A lot of picks just in the last few years where it's like, have you not watched the nba over these last like three years just this guy has no place uh gershon yabusele 2016 number 16 um turns out he, he gained about 150 pounds that didn't help his his bid to stay in the league uh henry ellenson 2016 number 18 2016 was a bad draft but then it also was compounded by a lot of these picks that just had no chance of ever succeeding uh bryce johnson 2016 number 25 um the crown jewel of the rock divers era david mission you know <laughs> 2016 number 39 yeah okay second rounders there's some second rounders that don't do that but like everybody knew this guy was terrible and he had like one good game i can't remember if it was at the combine or the i think it might have been the euro camp he has one good game and uh rock divers picked him
2: uh, he had a really horrible war projection
1: Uh, Justin Patton, 2017, 16th overall pick by the wolves extra credit for already having Carl Anthony towns and Gorgie Jang on the roster and having, you know, what would eventually be like almost 50 million a year (laughs) committed (laughs) to those guys.
2: He did come out pretty well statistically, and then broke his foot. Like what during during summer league or shortly after? Yeah, I mean, I think he
1: basically really. Uh, I don't know that I've really ever seen him play just organically, other than just like watching him on synergy. Um, now he's in the Thunder organization. Caleb Swanigan, just another one of these like ground bound power forward types. Uh, 2016 or 2017, 20, number 26. Antes <laughs> Pachnick's. Maybe I should get Derek Bodner on to talk about that one. Um, this one is pretty rough. Chandler Hutchinson, number twenty two overall pick in twenty eighteen. Your next four picks Aaron Holiday, Anthony Simons, Mo Wagner, Landry Shamit.
2: Are we gonna mention Tyler Leiden?
1: I guess we should, yeah. I mean, that's well, but Leiden actually, I mean, I I didn't like he in theory could protect the rim and shoot. Like he wasn't just like I hadn't really seen him play. I wasn't like, oh man, this guy is terrible. Obviously, he turned out horrible.
2: That um, was one where it was like the first time I saw him in person at summer league. I was like, wait, he's not actually tall. He can't play power forward in the NBA. He can't protect the rim. <laughs> and that became the cl- that very quickly became clear.
1: Um, a great pick by Jeff Schwartz, but not a very great pick by the Milwaukee Bucks or Shad Vaughn, number twenty fifteen, uh, number seventeen, <laughs> twenty fifteen. <2015. laughs> Uh, josh Eustis, 29th oh. overall in 2014 drafted the the first ever uh signability pick in uh in the nba even though they have a actual draft slot i think he took like did he take less than the uh than the 120
2: no i don't think he did end up getting that i think we speculated that but i don't yeah. feel like he did
1: Okay, but he they, they basically drafted him because he was willing to wait a year and he was like, you know, maybe at the bottom of the second round in most projections, if that. Yeah, if that. Um and no list would be complete without uh Targuy Nogumbo.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean if you draft a guy who's actually not eligible for the draft, I think that that automatically that maybe should be the winner.
1: Yeah. All right, KP. You're just uh, do a little grab bag here and uh, give us your some of your best draft picks of the uh,
2: what well, we've already here we've already alluded to this, but let's start with the 2014 draft in the International Centers. And uh, I'm going to start with Clint Capella, who was the number 25 pick in that year's draft. And the person I was alluding to when I talked about someone whose scouts saw is in that Noah Vonley, Thomas Robinson class of doesn't have any feel and therefore isn't as good as his athleticism and his, his stats at a young age would look like. Uh, uh, to take you behind the scenes, right before that draft, Kevin Arnovitz at that point was working as an editor and uh, I was working with him, and he pushed me to write about a steal of the draft and then why I didn't think that Wiggins was the best prospect in that year's draft. Um, And we went back and forth kind of on who the steal of the draft should be between Yusuf Nurkic and Clint Capella and uh, eventually chose Capella, wrote about him, and you know, the case for him is a rim-running center and a rim-protector. And for most of their rookie seasons, because Capella was in the G League, Nurkic was starting for the Nuggets, looked really good as a rookie, I was like, ah, damn, I can't believe we chose Capella over Nurkic. What a huge mistake. And at the end of that year, Capella comes up, eventually becomes the starter, uh, becomes, you know, one of the league's better centers. Nurkic's career took some detours. He's become quite good as well. But uh, ultimately, I think either of those would have worked out. But Capella in particular aged well.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So, Again, some of these picks that I'm going for, uh, Capella was one where he had fallen, was good in the statistical translations. He had a horrible hoop summit against what was, in retrospect, an unbelievably loaded class. A lot of the practices, he's going up against Carl Anthony Towns and Nikola Jokic were on the same team in that hoop summit. Also, Trey Lyles as well. I mean, he was like, there there are a lot of guys. And so Capella didn't look that good in the practices. You didn't realize that he's going up against like two future all-stars at the time. Um,
2: one of my strongest beliefs is to short the hoop summit like whatever happens at the hoop summit go the other direction
1: ah huh, all right um well that's not good because i want to go up there and <laughs> in portland restaurants and then and, and hang out with you um no it's very important make sure you tell the government that on, on my tax deductions when i go up there um, i mean it's
2: not like you have an editor to justify it too i think you're good
1: that that's true i think yeah that's uh i think i'll be okay there um Okay, this one I really like 27 or 2013 27th overall pick Rudy Gobert this is one where the jazz identified him traded up to get him from denver giving up a second rounder and cold hard cash to the nuggets uh and again gobert was uh, someone that really there was a huge uh, worth noting there was a huge run on centers in the 20s in that 2013 draft and gobert was uh, pretty close to the last of those picked you know, Plumlee, jang baby no uh, went ahead of those uh, went ahead of Gobert and uh the Jazz identified him did you
2: mention Mason Plumley?
1: Uh no, but yeah, he's definitely uh that's another one. Um so the but the, especially the fact that the Jazz bought that pick, identified him as being worth it, uh, and he was basically you know by his second year was uh all defensive player uh was pretty good.
2: Yeah, I think this was more of a scouting pick than it was a statistical one, but he was seventeenth in my projection, so I also had him in my top ten as well. Okay, your turn. Alright, another, let's go to the, uh, another person we've talked, to, alluded to a little bit, the, uh, 2011 draft. The number one in my war projections for, uh, I think at that point, the highest ever on record in terms of warp projections. A four-year player who was undersized and just dominated the college level, Kenneth Fareed, who dropped to 22 in that draft. Uh, one spot behind Nolan Smith when the Blazers kind of desperately needed a rebounder. You know, if you look back on like his entire career, it didn't work out so great for Fareed because once his athleticism started to weigh in a little bit and he probably got a little too consumed with being a scorer and the league started to move away from his skill set. His uh, his extension that he signed with the Nuggets when they tried to uh, give him a five-year extension when they weren't allowed to do so, that didn't age particularly well. He was eventually salary jumped, but if you look at the value they got from him on his rookie contract where he was a starter, basically the entire of that or t- entirety of that, making number 22 pick salary, that was an awesome pick.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't have had him quite that high, uh, just because uh, he didn't ultimately work out beyond about three or four years. Um, but that's uh, cer- certainly they got good value uh, there. Uh, next one for me and is Giannis Antetokounmpo, number fifteen overall pick in twenty thirteen. That was a little earlier than most people had him. The Bucks obviously identified him. This was the John Hammond go for length era, and it certainly worked out with Giannis. I had scouted Giannis in. In person when i was at the euro camp i was not as high on him i thought he was had some ball handling ability but oddly enough my scouting report on him was that he wasn't athletic uh and but he was just like so thin and i think as soon as he got onto any kind of an nba strength program he had this tip dunk in the 2013 preseason where i was like uh-oh i really screwed this up uh so it, it was uh but that i mean playing in the greek second division no one uh, and yeah draft express went over there they interviewed him he had an agent but you know he hadn't other than playing a f- couple of games for the greek under 20 national team in Jessolo, italy no one had seen him against any kind of high level competition and to take him 15th higher than most people projected it and obviously he's turned into maybe the best player in the NBA that gets a lot of credit both for the the process and just getting that player at number 15.
2: Uh, as we discussed earlier, I have no translations for the Greek second division. So, uh, uh, No,
1: actually, I think he was in the third division. Third, yeah. What about yeah. that?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that one I have. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, everyone knows second division is totally unreliable. Um, it's
2: like how they promote prospects from double A straight to the majors now in baseball. Yeah. It's, uh, you don't want to go to <laughs> second division. yeah i i mean i had no opinion on Giannis at the time but obviously a you know it was a point where the the risk uh the reward outweighed the risk and it has paid off handsomely
1: no i mean i didn't really see enough upside there with him and again this is very early on in in my process i'd like to think i would have done better now but i mean that type of length and you know skinny guys seem to really improve their athleticism more maybe uh once they're able to get a little bit stronger but i thought he didn't have the upside because i didn't think he was athletic and uh again um maybe uh i should have like you know done a better job um all right your next one
2: Let's go back to the 2011 draft and the very final pick of the 2011 draft. Uh, I was quite thrilled to see this for a variety of reasons, including the fact that I had bet a Frosty from Wendy's with one of my friends that this player would get drafted. And that is, of course, UW point guard Isaiah Thomas. Uh, before IT, just three number 60 picks had even played in the NBA since the league expanded to 30 teams wow, in 2004.
1: That's, that's a hell of a stat. I didn't know that.
2: Yeah. Uh, or it, that was at least in the, uh, but after the draft had reduced down to two rounds. Uh, none of them had played more than 1,000 minutes in that span. Now, uh, uh, there was one other, I think it was Semi Erden, uh, cracked that barrier. But basically, the expectations are very low for the final pick for the Mr. Relevant in the NBA draft. And not only did Isaiah Thomas stuck, he had a brief period of time where he was one of the very best point guards in the NBA. So even though the Kings sadly did not reap the benefit of those years, uh, still in Austin. Awesome draft pick
1: yeah i mean his 2016-17 season is one of the best offensive seasons that a point guard has ever
2: had i think people are going to forget because of the fact that they're going to see what happened to him after the hip injury and think oh you know that was just a fluke it was the brad Stevens system or you know whatever argument they make but he was, he was so good at that point. And, you know, as good offensively as Kyrie Irving was in that system the next two years.
1: I mean, I would say even better, frankly, offensively, um, you know, these, so I struggled with some of these second rounders because yeah, certainly when you look at the value 60th pick, you mentioned the track record there, but if you really felt that strongly about this guy, wouldn't you have made more of an effort to get him than the number 60 pick? I mean, maybe, you know, it's not great process to know that a guy is going to be available at 60 and give up assets to get him but well, it seems like a lot of these are kind of just like okay yeah we're taking the guy that we think is the best available here but it, there's got to be some luck if you really had an inkling that this guy was going to be that good right
2: yeah you probably wouldn't have taken jim or in in the in the, tra- in the lottery if you knew that isaiah thomas was going to be a star
1: yeah so uh, and I mean that comes you know Jokic is I'm sure he's going to be on your list and he would be on mine too but still it's like you know they drafted Nurkic and that they draft it's and yeah I get it you to like make the right selection of like okay this guy's a 15% chance of working out versus this guy is a 3% chance of working out uh yeah for sure but if anyone thought these guys were going to be the stars that they're going to be it's hard for me to give them that much credit I mean you you know they're not saying after they draft him oh yeah we got like a future superstar Nicole This uh, 6'11", 270-pound guy who... who, uh, Can't jump. Yeah. um, Okay, got to get to this one. Kawhi Leonard, number 15 overall pick in 2011. Sorry to bring up the pain, but uh, since you are intimately familiar with this one, would you like to uh, expand uh, on the circumstances of this a little bit?
0: I mean...
2: It's one of the unique trades in NBA history where one team, it was a massive win for one team, but it wasn't necessarily a loss for the other team because to get George Hill out of the 15th pick was actually a pretty good outcome for the Pacers. Got to the conference finals, you know, each of the next two years or two years in a row with George Hill at point guard, had a chance to knock off the heat. Like it worked out well from that standpoint. But uh, yeah, Kawhi Leonard going 15th was obviously way too low at the time. And, uh, you know, he just based on his defensive potential that he showed at San Diego State as a rebounder and the stocks he was putting up, he was seventh in my warp projections. Should have gone ahead of a number of guys who went in that year's lottery. But uh, then you put him in the San Antonio player development system and uh, and turn him into one of the greatest players in NBA history. Like, yeah, then, then it looks even, even better. Also, by the way, you know what the, the amazing thing about that tra- trade is? Let's hear it. You know who else the Spurs drafted with a pick out of that trade is Davis Bertans. <laughs> he went in the second round.
1: Oh man, wow. Uh, yeah, Davis Berton's current, uh, apple of everyone's eye. Um. Yeah, now, to play a little devil's advocate here, I mean, part of the reason this deserves so much credit is, I mean, they traded away one of Greg Popovich's yep. absolute favorite ever players, supposedly, in Hill, Another gem that they had gotten, right? It was yep. the 27th overall pick in 2009. Now, he was about to become extension eligible, and that was uh, maybe part of why they wanted to move on from him. Also worth noting, though, but so they identified him. They gave up a real asset that they really liked to say, no, we want this guy. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, they they picked the right guy. Now, could they have known that he would become, you know, one of the better shooters that we've seen from the small forward position? Not really much evidence for that. At I the mean, the time. Chi-
2: your chances are a lot better if you've got Chip England working with him.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm still... The Anglin myth, I'm I'm a little, like, he's definitely failed with a lot of guys. We'll put it that way, right? Like, the, at least getting him shooting threes at a minimum.
2: We're, we're still working on DeJounte Murray.
1: Yeah, DeJounte Murray, Derek White. I mean, even Tony Parker, like, never really stretched it out to three, even though Chip helped him with his mid-range game.
2: Well, that's partially because their coach hates three-pointers.
1: It does seem that way is it Derek you know, White Kyle shooting? Kyle well Anderson in threes this he year? wasn't able to do anything for Kyle Anderson.
2: Yeah, Derek White's shooting thirty nine percent this year. Again, it's a volume issue, which I don't know if that's Chip England's call.
1: Yeah, no, maybe not. Uh and And certainly, I mean, he has gotten a lot of these guys to be like pretty good mid-range shooters, which is not, it's not worth nothing. But it's also like, oh, we're going to get this guy to shoot from three. I mean, Danny Green already could shoot, I would say, probably, but he helped him some. But but anyway, this idea that, oh, anyone that he gets is just going to be made better, I think is a little overstated. But, I mean, that, that clearly was an organizational decision of like, hey, we've got Chip, we can fix this. And that time they were right. All right, you're up.
2: Uh, let's see here. Well, let's go to the, uh, 2009 draft and because it's way too long since we've mentioned this player, uh, Steph Curry at the number seven pick. As I mentioned, I actually had him outside the top 10 in the old version of my projections, but he was fourth in Hollinger's draft Raider had had this amazing sophomore season where, you know, he'd led, uh, why, why am I blanking on the name of, uh, Steph's Davidson. school? davidson to the elite eight uh you know then had kind of a relatively down junior year because of the fact that he was basically facing the same defense that james harden is now in the nba with a bunch of davidson teammates so you know that didn't work out super well but you know certainly even if it wasn't a sure thing how he was going to translate to the nba the potential for him to be this kind of player was there all along
1: yeah that's definitely true uh you know there wasn't really much of a history of a player like that succeeding beforehand but I think there was plenty of demand for him supposedly the yep. Suns were about to trade Amari Stoudemire for that pick and then it yep. didn't happen I mean that Stoudemire was a great player at the time um and also the, it was considered I think a seven player draft at the time too you know there's really was, everyone's was like oh the step down to number eight at Jordan Jordan Hill so I mean it was kind of an obvious pick but yeah I mean when you draft you know one of the greatest offensive players of all time at number seven that that's got to be up there I had it someone else from that draft and it's James Harden at number three because I don't recall there being much of a consensus that he should be the number three pick uh and you can correct me if i'm wrong here and but my recollection is that you know he was kind of supposed to go a couple of picks later and people are like hey you know like is he really that sexy like he's not that athletic you know he's uh just there he didn't really have a traditional game of the type of wing player who's going to go that high and you know obviously he turned out to be unbelievable so what's your recollection at the time of i'm I'm guessing he was probably pretty good in your translations for the same reason he's been an analytics starter in his whole career
2: yeah he was someone that i knew pretty well because he had played at arizona state in the pac-10 had seen him a number of times and it's interesting because some of the criticisms you mentioned about Evan Turner sort of applied to him I always was in love with Harden's game because he reminded me so much of Brandon Roy who was kind of a similar like very deliberate player played at his own pace got where he wanted on the court even though he wasn't you know, uh, Roy was probably a better athlete than Harden was in terms of the traditional measurables. Like, we know now that Harden's athleticism is like really his ability to stop, uh, quickly and, you know, that sort of thing. But, uh. Yeah.
1: He was also, I mean, he had a big, big wingspan to me. He had some pretty big dunks back when he was younger.
2: So I had him as my number four prospect at that point. Under the model I was using way back when, he's number two uh in the current model behind Dewan Blair, who was not seen as a legitimate lottery prospect because he yeah. didn't have ACLs and his other uh limitations in terms of size. Hollinger had him 10th in his draft radar that year. So, you know, it wasn't a sure thing. You're right that there was probably more of uh, out on a limb for Harden than there even was for Steph Curry in that year's draft.
1: Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of like the actual the actual pick there. Um All right, so so I'll I'll throw him in there. Um, I mean, I get like that. It was just one where they clearly saw it, and I think a lot of people didn't. Okay. What's next here?
2: Uh, 2012 draft, number 35 overall, Draymond Green. Uh, another case of your comment about second-round picks, because if the Warriors really liked him so much, they probably wouldn't have taken Festus Azalea five picks earlier and, give, and uh, <laughs> taken the risk that he was going to be gone. But, you know, maybe they knew that they could get Draymond Green with that next pick and were able to get Azili more in and not someone they would have liked less at number 35. Uh, he was third in my warp projections, uh, fourth in Hollinger's projections, but Hollinger had him rated just 16th on his draft board because of this concern, which is just amazing to read in hindsight. And I want to note for the record, yeah. this is not shade at all at Hollinger. I felt exactly the same way.
1: Everyone, this is one of the biggest scouting fails, <laughs> maybe the biggest scouting fail in NBA history.
2: <laughs> so let's take a closer look at two relatively short, stocky power forwards who are among the next names on the list. Jared Sollinger and Draymond Green. Will these guys put up numbers? Very likely. Will they be able to guard their position? That is a much more open question and why they won't go as highly as Draft Raider places them. Green in particular is a massive defensive question mark.
1: I mean yeah well well he wouldn't be able to guard his position because (laughs) he's only guarding his position 20 percent of the time he's spending 80 percent of the time guarding the other four positions
2: and part of this is the game has changed in terms of now we regard that as much more a positive part of that is Draymond Green got in better shape than he was at Michigan State I think that
1: is potential in disguise I think that he was the first guy that actually you know drop another Ethan Strauss reference here
2: I did a study on that and it if you look at like body weight percent or like body fat percentage is measured at the draft combine. It does not actually prove out, but I guess it's, I would say it's like body fat is variance in disguise. So that's a good thing. If you're drafting someone number 35 and not a good thing, if you're drafting someone five, I guess, uh, because yeah. you know, the okay. upside, if you get in shape is, is really high, but you know, if you're, if you're Jared Solinger, yeah. you never get in shape, then maybe it doesn't work out. Also, um,
1: by the way, there's like a 5% error margin on that body fat testing. Well, it's, it's
2: not accurate. But to me, the lesson of this story is, like, people tend to treat defense as a much more predictable quantity than it is. I think we look at, like, you know, someone who's a really good defender. You say it's a safe pick. Sometimes people will say, like, oh, this guy's floor is Tony Allen. It's like, really? His floor is the best wing defender of the past 20 years? Like, it seems likely that he won't be that good defensively. And then on the other side of this, like we didn't think the Draymond Green could defend and we were so, so massively wrong. But still, I mean, he was who I was hoping the Pacers drafted. That was my last draft with them. Uh, they they instead drafted Miles Plumley.
1: All right, I'm gonna go back to the 2011 draft here with the number 30 overall pick, Jimmy Butler. Butler was a college power forward not someone that i think was really even necessarily projected to go in the first round bulls took him 30th uh, and now so much of this is just his incredible work ethic and improvement Again, with his lack of shooting didn't really have any ball skills the hope was that he would defend and be athletic and could maybe grow into a 3 and d guy at some point and then by 14 15 he's playing at an all-star level and has this iso game and then he worked out a a pick and roll game as well but i mean to draft a guy who wasn't even projected to go in the first round and get him at number 30 in 2011 future all-star got to be on there
2: yeah i definitely recall liking him for that range of the draft he was 21st in my warp projections under the current model uh but yeah nobody saw him becoming a shot creator it was that three and d role in particular
1: yeah, and I mean, I, granted, I was not covering the NBA at the time, but I had never heard of him uh, <laughs> when he was drafted in 2011.
2: Um, he was, uh, yeah, he, he was definitely someone we were looking at with is the Pacers with a second round pick, not the uh, not the fifteenth
1: or through all well, thirtieth pick. Yeah,
2: N- well, I'm saying the the fifteenth pick. That, oh, the oh, oh, the that you had in that draft. Yeah, yeah gotcha.
1: Okay. Um, all right, your next one. We, we've each we've each done five so.
2: Uh, let's see I think I only have one left on my list because of the overlaps or no I have two left I guess Uh, so let's go uh, to 2018 we already discussed the other end of this Luka Doncic with the number three pick the Mavericks trading up with the Hawks to get this and even though I am generally opposed to trading up still a pick I love a deal I loved because of the fact that Doncic was like so clearly the number one prospect in my mind Uh, the best work projection of anyone in my system it's a little unfair comparison because of the fact that he was able to get more years of data than, you know, most one and done college players ever could in the in coming out of the NCAA because of the fact that he was a pro starting at age 16, but or earlier than that, like a high, a first division pro at age 16, but you know, a, a dominant player in Euro league at age 18, it was I, I don't I still don't know if I expected him to be this good this early, particularly in terms yeah. of his ability to create shots. But still, an amazing pick.
1: Yeah, and you know, in terms of just the pure value, wasn't uh, amazing uh, to move up two spots uh, to give up another first rounder, top four protected, albeit as it was. Here is another one that I think doesn't get mentioned enough: Joel Embiid, number three overall in twenty fourteen. You basically already knew that he was going to miss a season. Uh, they had drafted someone who was going to miss a season the previous year Noel who who was already a center and I mean this this typified the thinking of the process era of hey you know what we don't really know what we're doing let's just get as many bites at the apple as we can it doesn't matter if we win this year just the the vision that was required there and he ended up of course missing two years now that same philosophy got them to pick Okafor the next year and that didn't work out too well but uh, Embiid clearly was the number one overall prospect the willingness to actually wait and you know he obviously. obviously has paid off very handsomely for the Sixers.
2: Yeah, I was 100% wrong on this one. I did the research on the history of navicular fractures for Big Ben and the number of, you know, centers whose career was ended by this injury really scared me off. I dropped him, I think, to probably fifth, sixth, or seventh on my draft board. That's where I thought that the risk reward made sense. But, you know, in hindsight, with how much better he was as his has been as a player and was as a prospect than the guys that went ahead of him, like even, even if it was, you know, probably a 50% chance that it would be a career ending injury. It probably still would have been worth the risk where he was taken.
1: Yeah, but so many GMs are too conservative. They they wouldn't take even if a player had a 50% chance of being a superstar and a 50% chance of like never playing a game. They would not take that guy at number 3 just because of like the downside risk and like, "Oh, we're going to waste a, a number 3 pick on a guy that is going to get me fired." And also worth noting, too, that at the time was considered like this unbelievable deep draft as it turned out that wasn't the yep. case. Uh he was by far the best player available
2: still waiting on Dante Exum uh,
1: all right um, the
2: last player yeah the yeah. last player on my list is we, we've discussed him quite a bit but Nikola Jokic at number 45 in 2014 41 uh, wasn't it okay yeah I must have had that wrong in my uh, database uh he was fifth in my stats only projections had you know been this Dominant force in uh, uh, playing in the uh, Adriatic League, along with Yusuf Nurkic, and you know to be able to get someone like that in the second round and just stash him and see how he develops. I mean, it, again, as you mentioned earlier, like no, no one could have foreseen that he would become this MVP candidate force that he was prior to this season. Uh, but you know, still, at that point, for the the Nuggets have seemed to, in particular, make real make selections that have really aligned with what my numbers have said and. Uh, Uh, have have tended to uh hit on a lot of those even though some of them have have been disappointments so i think that there was a process here even though they took Nurkic earlier in that draft that you know they were very clear that you know we he's not quite worth the risk that high but once we can get him this low hey we may as well do it and figure it out later and they had to sell Nurkic low eventually but i'm sure they would do it all again
1: all right a couple more here donovan mitchell 2017 number 13 overall pick i'm guessing he wasn't in there for you because he you're still not as high on him as a player but i, I think this is another one where hey the jazz clearly identified him they traded uh trey lyles a, a guy who they were relatively high on at one point although he then grew a bit sullen after not playing his second year behind uh boris dia among others and uh, 24 to move up to draft mitchell at 13 and you know, probably the best that would probably go number one overall if you had to redo that 2017 draft at least for a lot of people um so that that's one that's got to be in there especially because again there's the aspect of we weren't just sitting there and we took this guy we went and got him
2: right I mean I I only had one player drafted in the lottery I think in my on my top 10 and that was Steph so you know Donovan's got a ways to go to be like inner circle hall of famer uh but definitely a very worthy contender
1: okay a couple others I just wanted to mention here quickly I think we have enough nominees um of guys that I think just picks that had some vision of players that were considered reaches that actually turned out to be really good Terry Rozier 2015 16th overall pick that was one that a lot of people really hated at the time and you know he's i think most people would have thought he wasn't even gonna be a rotation player and he's a, a, a minimum a solid backup point guard and lower end starter uh <laughs> actually playing a little bit better than people realize i think in charlotte this year
2: he is overshadowed by Devonte graham for sure
1: oh yeah uh taj gibson 2009 number 26 24 years old when he was drafted as a bulls fan at the time i hated the pick because why the hell would you draft a 24 year old but he's still in the league and is you know probably should have won six man in 2013-14 um landry shamit 26 sixth overall pick in 2018 another one who's considered a total reach this guy's too slow he can't play point guard well that's fine because he's just going to come off of screens and kill you and he actually is uh pretty decent off ball defensively as well uh Chris Middleton, Malcolm Brogdon, Josh Richardson, Montrez Harrell, all second round picks uh, who deserve uh, some discussion in addition to the ones uh, that you mentioned. Uh, uh,
2: if we're doing guys that were considered reaches at the time, you were right about this guy, but I, I certainly was way off on him was uh, Jalen Brown is, with the third pick in 2016. I mean, I don't, you wouldn't say that that was an amazing pick in and of itself, but compared to where the consensus was on him, the Celtics were for sure right.
1: Yeah, fair, fair enough. Um, okay, give me your three worst drafts picks and of course we we can overlap here now uh if needed Who, who is your worst draft pick of the last 10 years
2: so we're gonna go top three first yes uh i'm gonna go oh okay uh i went with anthony bennett i i can tell you disagree in terms of you know the process versus the results here but it's the number one pick and you got a guy who not only is not a good player but could not play at all in the nba i mean that is a disaster. It it set up the Cavaliers in terms of they won the lottery again the next year and got Wiggins and were able to parlay him into Kevin Love. But you know, there's a scenario where if that doesn't happen, uh, maybe Bennett being so bad undermines the entire appeal of you know how or the way they're able to build around LeBron James and prevents them from ultimately winning a championship.
1: Yeah, they uh really lucked out in hindsight that that didn't kill them. But I guess they just had to suffice with uh you know two other <laughs> number 1 overall picks uh in that four-year period. Yes. My number 1 is is the beat clear I mean already had Gasol, awesome lottery ownership involvement. I thought he looked pretty stiff and bad. Didn't really have any kind of high scoring potential at that point in time. Not really mobile enough to be the impact defender everyone thought. Struggled, you know, catching the ball uh, and staying upright. He he fell down really a, a lot for a seven three guy.
2: <laughs> Not a lot of that, core strength. That,
1: that that's uh, that's my number one. And I, I I didn't really have much competition. I thought he was that's worst by uh, quite a bit.
2: He's number two on my list, just as he was in that year's draft. <laughs>
1: Okay, who, who is uh, your number three then?
2: Uh, I think I'm going to go with Wes Johnson as my number three. Just yeah. a very predictable failure.
1: Yeah, he would he would be up there for me as well, especially because we didn't even mention this before. Cousins went next. and yes. they imagine how good Cousins could have been in the triangle, Kate? <laughs> I
2: mean, he was, he was a good passer out of the high post. I guess it actually would have worked <laughs> okay for him.
1: Hey, you know, Sha- Shaq was good in the triangle as well. Um, yeah, I think Wes would probably be... My number two, and just to be a prisoner of the moment, Marvin Bagley, number three. Even though, again, Kings fans, I don't think he's terrible. He's exceeded expectations. It was just, everyone was killing it at the time. Luca is looking like a top five player. He's probably going to be the next, the maybe the best player of the next decade. And it was just, it was so obvious and just really, I, I, you, you'll never know how much of it was, ooh, he really wants to be in Sacramento. But yeah, there's just,
2: so many stories told about why they didn't draft Onchish. So. It's tough to know is separate truth from fiction there.
1: Um Yeah, so let's go. To worst picks again, KP, Anthony Bennett, Hashim Thabit, and Wes Johnson. Mine were Thabit. Wes Johnson seems to be a little bit of consensus there. And uh, Marvin Bagley. The, the reason I didn't have Bennett quite as high was just that there wasn't as big of an opportunity cost among the players that reasonably could have gotten picked there. Uh, and it wasn't also like an obvious, like, oh, this is bad at the time pick. Because, again, like there was a very fluid situation there for the uh, the number one overall pick. OK, best picks.
2: So again, I think we have a different process here. I took Jokic as the best pick. I mean yeah. the vision to take him even if you didn't necessarily weren't necessarily convinced that he was going to be this kind of player, and then to eventually build around him and you know, he's you know they've got a lot of very good players, he is the primary reason, the driving force in how they've become a contender again and you know, because of a second round pick.
1: Let me ask you a question here. Do, does say Steph Curry over your typical seven pick or Jokic over your typical 41 give you like more raw warp than expected?
2: Let me pull up that spreadsheet. I don't have that open right now. Uh, they are. Oddly, Carl Anthony Towns, just because of the fact that it was such a weak draft, is number one when I do this measure over the past decade. Uh, Curry is number two. Jokic is number three. There, it's a, like about one win per season greater for Curry than Jokic.
1: Yeah. So what is the difference between your typical number seven pick and your typical 41 pick? Uh,
2: the expected, uh, on a per year basis is 3.5 wins above replacement.
1: Yeah. So basically Curry would have to be 3.5 wins per year, better than, than Jokic to make up that, difference,
2: so. which he has thus far. And that's also the, yeah, that's factoring in kind of how far into their careers they are.
1: Sure. Sure. Uh, Okay, Um, my best number one is Kawhi, especially just the process there, going up and getting him, giving up a good player to get him. Just awesome, awesome draft pick. Identifying him as a player that they could improve in the specific ways that they thought were important. Uh, Again, seeing him as, you know, they probably thought he could be more 3 and D and him becoming this incredible individual offensive force. I don't foresee that anyone saw that coming, but again, because they really went after him, that's, I give him a lot of credit there.
2: Uh, My number two is going to be Giannis in terms of, of you know the the foresight to take a risk like that and have it pay off completely. And again, a a franchise changing, franchise defining player and move.
1: Yeah, he was my number two as well number three i went with rudy gobert again the identifying him trading up aspect i give a lot of credit there uh just barely beating out uh butler and Embiid for me i'm
2: gonna take curry number three uh i one thing we didn't mention early on is you know part of the reason one of the reasons they would have looked to trade him is you know there was this idea you couldn't take him because they already have monte ellis is the established ball dominant yeah. star Yeah,
1: but monte ellis had that idea <laughs>
2: <laughs> he for sure did. <laughs> uh, and to to not only, you know, just take him as the best player available, I'm ultimately figure that out by trading Monte Ellis for Andrew Bogut. You know, prove kind of the last piece of that original championship starting five puzzle. Uh, you know, just the start of an amazing era of Warriors basketball
1: yeah that's a that is a good point the oh we already had ellis he's the star but i mean they also had don nelson as the coach i don't know that he was really like complaining too much about having like two guys in the backcourt but um yeah no i mean obviously there's there's a i think it's kind of easier to do the worst ones than the best ones because the best ones you can just have so many different i think our our criteria diverge a little bit more on uh on the Agreed. best ones and the worst ones so all right this is a lot of fun um we've been going for a while here so uh it can definitely uh, get you out of here i'm gonna stick around and do some news uh, right after this so time to do a little solo work here with danny gone KP was going to talk about some of this stuff but big surprise we ran long on all decade content that never happens let's start in new york haven't had a chance to talk about the david Fizdale firing yet hard to say that he's done some great job also hard to say that he's the problem it was really an Inevitable since they were two and eight after that loss to Cleveland. They had that presser that he would, in fact, be fired. It seemed like there was a lot of pressure in the organization. The more interesting thing at this point now are the machinations in the front office. Frank Isola reporting that Steve Mills basically will be fired. Then there's talk about potentially Masayu Jiri joining this team. Differing reports on whether he turned down and was offered a contract extension or not. Now, these are always subject to semantics, right? What is an actual offer? Is it, hey, would you like to talk about a contract extension? No. Is that an offer? Is it only an offer if you say, hey, we are offering you three years and... 28 million dollars to do this do you accept or not you know there's always wiggle room on this type of crap i'm guessing that's probably what it was but from howard beck reporting that ujiri turned down a contract extension then it was reported by wojen ramona michael granger and larry tannenbaum himself said that ujiri is going to be here for the long term but that no contract extension was offered They sure are going to have to offer Ujiri a lot of power, but this is kind of like the college coaches things where, at a minimum ujiri might as well encourage this talk behind the scenes warren lagaria's agent might as well encourage this talk behind the scenes because at a minimum it increases his value to toronto where his contract is believed to expire in 2021 but he's supposed to have some kind of outs potentially as well other new york news steve perry or scott perry and steve mills just call him steve perry at this point uh their contracts contain team options two consecutive team options at the end of this season so they could be fired with no real hit to Dolan's pocketbook. Now, this always has the thing of, do you want these guys who you're going to fire running your trade deadline? Did you try to make a move now? is there an edict that these guys shouldn't do anything at the trade deadline they do have some veteran assets that uh, like marcus morris it was reported i forget who by in the new york media it might have been ian begley that some executives expect marcus morris to get a first round pick i don't necessarily fall into that category unless there's also some bad salary being taken on as well and you throw in the matching salary it can be kind of difficult if it's just pure expiring contract for marcus morris and a first round pick involved as well the list of teams that can do that and would want to do that That is pretty small and perhaps even uh, non-existent. New Orleans, Zion Williamson, not close to getting back. No indication that he has started on-court activities yet. The six to eight weeks is going to be longer. Looks like it's going to be at least into 2020 before he plays. Kristen Ledlow reporting that his return will come after the initial six to eight week window. Eight weeks would have been December 16th, so clearly he's not even close to on track there. I mean, I'm guessing it's going to be another month for him if he hasn't even started on-court activities yet. Also worth noting that now it's six and 18, and yeah, they have a little bit better point differential than that, but they're going to be so far out of it that it would make sense to take his time. Hopefully, he does. it doesn't go so long that he ends up on the Ben Simmons let's wait for you to debut until next year i think they have enough pressure from season ticket holders that they won't be able to do that and also he may not have the same as ben simmons but he probably has something in his shoe contract obviously for winning rookie of the year nice report from my buddy john hollinger and sam amick talking about the coaching market Uh, alvin gentry had his team option for 2021 picked up in june he's owed more than five million for next season it seems to be that they're going to give him a chance to coach this healthy roster he does of course have that relationship with david griffin but and with Derek favors missing so much time this year as well tough to make a good defense but gentry has basically never made a good defense either worth considering favors still working back into it trying to get in better shape after he is missed a couple of weeks due to the death of his mother and recall that he had knee and back issues before that as well. Reverse alphabetical order, Minnesota, Jake Lehman, this wasn't reported as some major issue. He's missed like a month now with this toe issue. He keeps getting ruled out a day or so in advance. No update at all on his status. Minnesota starting to crater a a little bit down to three games under five hundred. Giannis Anacumpo missed Wednesday's game against New Orleans with right quad tendon soreness he's had uh, some knee issues here and there this is something to watch they don't play him that many minutes even during the playoffs they didn't play him that many minutes but I think the other Bucks players and Mike Budenholzer don't get enough credit for how well they've played without Giannis in some of these games in the last couple of years they completely destroyed New Orleans they're up 28 to 12 and it was never close for Miami Justice Winslow has been out three straight with a lower back strain Again, Miami is one of these teams that doesn't really say, oh, he's it's going to be four weeks for this guy. You'll just hear a guy get, oh, he's not playing tonight, and then they just keep saying the next game that he's not playing, and all of a sudden it's been two months. So he is getting ruled out like 24 hours before these games, so I think there's a concern that he, he might miss some time here. KZ Akpala is back, though. He had Achilles soreness, saw his first action of the year in the rarely seen overtime garbage time against the Hawks on Tuesday I did have one of those moments where I saw a guy wearing number four for Miami I was like who is that I noticed oh it must be Casey Akpala that was just an amazing game uh, on Tuesday against the Hawks the Hawks go up six Trey Young says it's over with 59.9 remaining and the Heat proceeded to score the next 23 points of the game two threes to tie it and send in an OT <laughs> and then the first 18 points of overtime no 17 points of overtime it would be so yeah it was garbage time at the end of OT. Remarkable the Grizz Josh Jackson who John Hollinger on our recent pod said has been the best player in the G League well he can't be that if he misses G League games which he did due to a violation of team rules that cost him actually a game off his NBA salary due to the suspension it later came out that he missed a meeting I asked Taylor Jenkins about that on Monday when the Grizz were in San Francisco he gave the usual platitudes we'll deal with it internally I asked him if this is going to be an issue for him as he's trying to work back to actually being with the team it seemed like the reason they have him with the g league right now is just because they don't want him around this young team regardless of how well he plays and jenkins again said hey not to be repetitive is how he started it and then he repeated himself by saying that they're going to handle it internally no surprises there but i did ask for you guys for the lakers Rajon rondo did not play against the magic with a hamstring issue he really has missed a lot of time over the last few years remember that it, it was a calf before that's all that uh posterior chain and but Avery Bradley did return from a stress factory played 17 minutes off the bench in their victory over the Magic which Marco Fultz missed with an illness the Clippers uh, got a nice win back in Toronto who's been struggling but Patrick Beverly suffered a concussion due to a Marcusol elbow he did have a concussion back I think in 2015 so you'd imagine he's going to miss a couple of games ja, might Michael Green not Jeff Green has missed four of five with a tailbone injury he tried to play in one of those games he only played four minutes uh clips haven't really been that affected they've also been without roddy magruder but he could be back as soon as friday against minnesota from that right hamstring injury but this is the beauty of this team that the clippers have they keep rolling right along with just this incredible wing depth that they have i mentioned toronto fred van vliet has been out he's missed two straight after suffering a knee contusion in philly on sunday we mentioned that his minutes kind of seemed unsustainable uh he'd been playing in the 37 minutes of game range Kyle lowry is back to help with that a little bit now but toronto their only victory was a last minute win over the bulls i think in their last five and the schedule obviously has gotten harder but it's been difficult for them of late and they obviously need van vliet Uh, that's the one they really only have two point guards on the roster so uh, missing one of those you thought not having lowry would kill them it hasn't but van Vleet also uh, is incredibly important to them that's why he's been playing so many minutes in utah mike conley left a game last week with precautionary left hamstring tightness or precautionary absence due to left hamstring tightness a reminder that when you hear tightness that's basically total bs they have some sort of an injury otherwise it wouldn't be feeling tight and precautionary or not he's now missed four straight and he's getting ruled out early before games it seemed like he tried to ramp up his activity and practice on friday but uh at least a mild setback for him in washington isaiah thomas is going to be out another week or so so due to a calf injury. He's uh, missed the last three games, that from Shams And interesting to watch their defense. He obviously is a terrible, terrible defensive player. And they might be more competitive without him, even if he does help their offense, because Ish Smith is such a limited shooter. But with them playing a lot of Mo Wagner and Davis Bertans together, maybe you can get away with Smith a little bit more. And uh, crazy is to say, get a defensive upgrade with Ish Smith. Sacramento, this happened a bit ago. We did not get get a chance to talk about it. I think it's important to mention, Mm-hmm. That the sexual assault lawsuit uh, against Luke Walton has been dropped if you're going to cover it when it initially is reported and there's all the sensationalism. If it gets dropped, you also need to cover it the same way you would as if it went forward. So obviously you don't know whether these events actually occurred or not, given the lack of witnesses, the amount of time that it had been, the fact that there wasn't a criminal complaint, regardless of the truth of the allegations, they're always going to be extremely difficult to prove in court and that lawsuit has uh, been dropped dropped fox starting to play three on three he says he's about a week and a half away from a return and the kings have treaded water during that time they've had a number of very nice victories although some might say fortunate victories these last couple of games in particular with big shots from Bielitsa and Bogdanovich. But if they can get Fox back, Bagley uh, has come back as well. They'll be getting healthy. We'll see whether uh, how much Bagley helps them. He was coming off the bench in his injury return, but and there also will be a lot of tension if he's not starting. He started the year, and then he suffered that injury in that first game against Phoenix that they got completely destroyed. So the Kings could be right in it here. Portland, really sad news. Rodney Hood torn left Achilles. You remember, actually, that back in October 2017, he had a scare where he had to be carried off the floor. It ended up being called a left calf strain. It was feared initially that he had a torn Achilles at that time. And it's interesting that a lot of these guys who tear their Achilles, Rudy Gay was another one, suffer from some sort of prior injury in that area. The Achilles doesn't really heal itself that well. And, you know, whether that was a calf strain, I mean, KD is another one of these, obviously, whether that was a calf strain, the team was just calling it a calf strain, whether there was some damage to the Achilles as well that isn't really going to repair itself. And there's a little bit of a ticking time bomb aspect after you suffer that initial injury. Mike Conley has never actually had the torn Achilles, but he's uh, had some issues there uh, as well. So that's something to consider the next time you hear one of these, you know, I mean, there's the calf strain that's in the belly of the muscle, which is like the the gastrocnemius that I don't think you're as at risk, but if it's lower down on the calf, uh, then maybe it can affect the Achilles. That maybe is what happened here with Hood. Portland now is an open roster slot. Iman Schumper just got waived in Brooklyn. Maybe Portland will get in on that they also can apply for a 2.85 million disabled player exception recall that that can be used to acquire a player in the last year of his contract who has a salary up to that amount or to just sign a player as well they are in the tax they may be not that willing to spend because it seems like they may just kind of be out of it they've made some comebacks but to go this team had higher aspirations in the eighth seed Dwight Jeans had a column saying that he, he believes the Blazers are going to target a player who's under contract for a while, not an expiring such as, say, Danilo Gallinari, But Kevin Love, obviously, has been rumored there. We'll see whether that makes sense or not. That's a lot of salary to take on. Blazers actually could have cap space this summer. They might be able to get a veteran who would help them a little bit more than Love and be on a more reasonable contract, given that there will be few teams able to spend above the mid-level exception that are actually good and want to sign a veteran. Also worth noting that Hood has a $6 million player option for 2021 and unlikely that they're going to get anything out of him going forward here so he could be used as salary fodder maybe if they're going to give up a future first part of the value they get from that is moving off of hood which will be essentially dead salary next year in phoenix devin booker is dealing with some right wrist soreness he's had a a wrap on it he was giving a lot of high fives with his left hand he shot only six out of 17 against the grizz did have 10 assists for orlando nikola vucevic could return as early as Friday against the Rockets. And Al farouq Aminu is out indefinitely with this torn meniscus. Uh, we talked about that a, a little bit, but they are going to wait and see if the injury can be treated without surgery. I haven't heard anything about him actually having that surgery yet. For OKC, Andre Robertson is just going to get a change of scenery to go rehab in LA. just seems like he has not been able to get over the hump, experiencing swelling whenever he tries to ramp up his activity. And I don't know if he's going to go rehab outside of the organization. I mean, it's probably try time for him to try something different coming up on two years since he's last played, going to be a, a free agent as well. But seems unlikely at this point that he's going to be able to find a way to get on the court, but he's going to be trying a different approach. Shams Rania reporting that OKC could be a home for big contract dumps near the deadline. There are not too many toxic deals, but they've got Dennis Schroeder, they've got Steven Adams, chris paul might make a little bit too much money and go a little bit too far on when we talk about big contract dumps it might not necessarily be contracts that go for longer than adams and shooter but maybe just for players who are worse than them and that that's where uh draft pick compensation value could come in in indiana victor oladipo is getting better getting closer but still a ways away according to nate mcmillan i don't see him coming back anytime in the near future he has been doing some practicing he has been doing some five on five but certainly, they're of the luxury of being more cautious now with this great start that they've had, albeit against a crappy schedule. And obviously, it was playing through injury that seems likely to have contributed to him going down initially. Jay Michael, our uh, Pacers guest, uh, gave his opinion, not source, that he thinks it'll be not until mid-January for Oladipo. Shams reporting that the Rockets are willing to give up more future assets for roster help right now. They're going to target wing players that they perpetually need. Part of their problem is the matching salary. Eric Gordon cannot be traded. They also just have these basically two dead roster spots with Gerald Green and Nene that they're dealing with. As ever, though, uh, they're not playing amazingly well, but they're getting great production from Minimum Guys, uh, Ben McLemore. The most obvious uh, of those. But Houston does have a couple of picks that they can trade before the picks that they traded in the Westbrook deal come due. They can trade 2020 and 2022. They also had their protest denied. Interesting ruling on it, though. It was noted that the challenge rule was misapplied. Mike D'Antoni supposedly saying that he wanted to challenge it. The referees apparently ruled that he was outside the 30 seconds to challenge it, but they didn't actually tell him what the ruling was until that time had elapsed which was ridiculous and also worth noting that on the play-by-play it was just shown as a missed shot not a goaltend by Harden. I, the missed shot I don't believe would have been reviewable. A goaltending call would be and Anthony did call a timeout did attempt to review it they didn't let him do it so those referees uh, including crew chief James Capers are going to receive undisclosed discipline but Adam Silver finally noting that Houston had plenty of time to make up for the error it would be pretty unprecedented to replay a game this early that would open a big can of worms and hey you know you're still up 13 probably still should have won the game houston and jonathan fagan noted this on twitter that what would have been a more unfair outcome forcing the spurs to replay the entire game when they came back or, or from 750 left in the game when you're down 13 and Houston would almost certainly win that's a bigger injustice to the Spurs to me than Houston having two points taken off the boards and losing the game they had plenty of chances at to- as mentioned. For Golden State, uh, Jacob Evans and two way man Damian Lee are back. D'Angelo Russell also came back uh, on their road trip last week. For the Pistons, it's going to be another week until Reggie Jackson is again reevaluated with his back issue. And just something to monitor here Markeith Morris played, but he was on the injury report with a sore neck. Recall that he had that cervical neck issue last year that really kind of ruined uh, his season. Dallas has had very few health issues other than Dwight Powell until now with Dalon Wright right a doctor issue he's doubtful for tonight's game he has had some groin issues in the past kevin love hollinger and i talked a, a fair amount uh, about this but uh hey big news he prefers a move to a contending team he's uh clearly miserable there uh, again listen to hollinger and duncan where we talked about his situation extensively but uh yeah you know if you want to be on a contending team then maybe don't sign this extension in Cleveland because it was clear that they were going to be moving into a a new phase. I know they're making noises about potentially competing when love signed the extension and maybe love believed he was good enough that he could push this team into playoff contention but that clearly has not been the case but he almost makes too much money to trade we'll see and goes out too long to trade it's kind of the same problem as chris paul you 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 got your money but now it's really hard to get you to a contending destination unless you give a lot of that up which uh, might not be realistic the bulls disturbing news that otto porter is going to be out a minimum of four more weeks recall that he has a player option that some thought he might actually turn down but now it seems inevitable that he's going to opt into that in the high 20s next year chandler hutchison has also been out two weeks with a right shoulder sprain meaning that the bulls have precisely zero small forwards uh, available denzel valentine's been getting some playing time um, resurrecting his career in charlotte shams reporting that teams are interested in trading for marvin williams kind of the same issue as trading for marcus morris where he makes about 15 million are you really going to give up a first rim? do you also have an expiring contract to max salary match salary Charlotte might, in theory, be willing to take on a bad contract. They do have cap space this summer. And maybe that increases the draft compensation. But Williams, I definitely feel, can help a a playoff team as a power forward, small ball center, can switch, protect the rim, hit threes, valuable player. Uh, He has missed three straight with a sore right knee. I assume that's not related to the fact that we're coming up on December 15th and they want to keep him in one piece. Uh, Nick Batum has been in and out of the lineup with left hand discomfort. He's not really a positive player for them at this point. That doesn't matter too much. And Malik Monk has been dealing with this left pinky issue since November. He actually missed the game on Wednesday. So it might have to take a little time to get feeling better there for the Nets. Still another one to two weeks for Irving. Uh, This is another one of these ones where the Nets just gave zero indication when this injury happened, that it would take this long. He's still not taking contact. As I want to say, the Nets are extremely conservative about managing injuries, which in this season where Kevin Durant is not healthy, makes perfect sense. And they, of course, have been able to stay above water thanks to the contributions of Spencer Dinwiddie. Karis LeVert, remember he had that thumb ligament surgery. He's been cleared for on-court work, but he's not ready to take contact yet either. So it seems like at least a couple of weeks for him and at least one, possibly two for Irving. Bet the over on that, I would say. Gordon Hayward is back in Boston, but he may have broken his nose against Indiana. But that's something that guys are usually able to play through. We kind of just forget about that. Oh, yeah, I'll just put a mask on. He'll play. No, it's actually a fair amount of discomfort to break your nose. But he played 26 minutes against the Cavs uh, on Monday. Smart has also missed two straight with uh, this illness slash eye infection. He doesn't look like he's going to play tonight against Philly when we'll be doing the NBA cast. Got a special guest on that as well. And then in Atlanta... Sean's reporting that after yet another miserable loss last week, a high-ranking team official was seen telling Trey Young that the team would be getting him some help on the roster soon, according to multiple sources. It is really an interesting situation that Atlanta is in. They're playing a little better recently. They will probably play better than that when John Collins comes back, but they really have probably too many holes on this roster to compete for the playoffs. Not usually a situation with this young team. They've been in total rebuilding mode. They have so many bad contracts on the books that they would make a move just to get better for this year. doesn't really seem to fit into the plan there, but Trey has been really good and maybe if they can get something else, you know, he, he seems like he's starting to become a little disgruntled and you know when your team is scoring uh you know 90 points per 100 possessions when you're off the floor i can understand that last thing lamello ball is going to miss four weeks in australia with a bruised foot and given the short length of the australian season and the fact that his team the illawar hawks is in last place it would seem to augur that we will not see him again in the australian league I and mean, he's done enough that he's at the top of draft boards already so why risk that when you're not even going to be helping your team All right, and I think that will do it here. Watch the NBA cast tonight with a special guest. 4 o'clock Pacific Time, 7 Eastern, Sixers, and Celtics. Thanks again to the new podcast, Ledlow and Parker, for sponsoring today's show. Only two voices can keep up with this league that moves at the speed of social media. Kristen Ledlow and Candace Parker with their all-new weekly podcast, Ledlow and Parker. They cover the hottest storylines in and around the NBA, break down Hoop's impact on the sports landscape, and talk to some of the biggest names in and around the NBA, as well as some of the most interesting voices impacting the sports and entertainment world today. Listen and subscribe to Ledlow and Parker wherever you get your podcasts. This week, Becky Hammond on the show. Last week it was Dwayne Wade. They got some awesome, awesome guests. They've had Trey Young, Allison Felix, and CJ McCollum, Charles Barkley. Really good stuff uh, from Ledlow and Parker.
0: At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period.